When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, friends. You're listening to a slightly edited live interview with Ned Bolting, recorded at Look Mom No Hands on 49 Old Street on Thursday, the 5th of September. Please enjoy. Hi, everybody. Hello. <laughs> Welcome. We have a very special guest with us this evening. Everybody, please give it up for Ned, Ned Bolting. Can I just say, so, the last two minutes have been some of the strangest minutes of my entire life. Oh, I've it's kind gonna of enjoyed get, them in a weird gonna way. It's going to get a lot worse. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> Good. Oh, so, I am your captain, Alex I look after social media, marketing, and events at Look Mum No Hands, where we are right now, Cycle Cafe Bar Workshop on 49 Old Street, London, and I am joined by my stoker. Riding in the back of the tandem, my name is Jenny, I'm the director of the London Bike Kitchen. We are a do-it-together bike workshop in Hackney, and we teach people how to fix their own bikes through classes, drop-in sessions, and our women and gender variant wag nights. What do you do, Ned? (laughs) (laughs) I am a cycling writer and broadcaster, probably. That's about it. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Sounds about right. Yeah, and I'm cool. incapable of fixing my own bike. That's okay. There's to, nothing to, wrong to with that. To any extent whatsoever. I mean, just about managed changing a tube. And that's Admitting it. it is the first step. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, go to Jenny's workshop and she'll sort you out. <laughs> or come to us and we'll do it for you. Ned, I don't know if you remember me. Um, it was the summer of 2013. And uh, you had a magnificent <laughs> beard back then. <laughs> uh, it was the LCC Awards, and uh, London Bike Kitchen had just won a very premature best community project. Look in at London. me in my suit. And look at you in the suit that we ruined yeah. uh, with the bottle of uh, non-champagne, whatever it was. That's right. And right at that moment, I'm thinking twenty-four pound ninety-nine dry cleaning. Right then, in that moment, I'm not thinking about... So, what, what award did you win? You we, soaked me in champagne for some reason. I can't remember Yeah, what it was uh, Best Community Project in London. Well we done. Had, we, yeah, I'd like to, like to point out that was in 2013, so there have been several other winners since then. Yeah, but, but we're still here. So there that's, you go. <laughs> yeah. There's another counts. slide. There's another picture of the aftermath. Yeah, there we go. I'm go. not crying tears of joy here. Look at, look at that forced smile. I was um, like, <laughs> that is such the, a hollow smile. You're like, <laughs> really, really watery, isn't it? Yeah. 
you know, you pulled it off, Ned, so thank you. And this is just a public apology. Uh, however many years later, what is it? For spring, Ned. Five years later, yeah. Don't worry, for the record, I never took it down the dry cleaners anyway. It, dry, it just dried. It's probably dried. the last time I wore a suit, to be fair, so there we go. We're all here because we all bloody love bicycles in all different shapes, forms, and sizes. So good on you, everybody, for being into the right thing. Go bikes. <laughs> good hobby. So, Ned, I want you to go back. Yes. Can you tell us about the first time you rode a bicycle? Yeah, I can. I can remember it very clearly. Um, and I think that's what, you know, you've touched, you've really touched a nerve there because um, we are, we are, we all kind of have come from different parts of London, perhaps from further afield. We all do completely different jobs. We all have arrived here tonight. And I probably the only thing that we all share in common is, is, is our experience and our love and our enjoyment of riding bicycles, whether or not we ride them very fast, whether or not we ride them in shorts with a padded ass and uh, lycra and clippy, clippy shoes, or whether or not we just mess around like I do and, you know, the rest of the rest, uh, just getting from A to B on our bikes. We all enjoy that bit, but um, we all have very different experiences of riding, and some of us are interested in road racing, other of us couldn't, perhaps couldn't give a damn. Um, but I guess that anyone who rides a bike, and I would probably think that's pretty much everyone in this room, the one memory that we all share is that memory that for the first time in your life... Um, you know, whether, whether you, it was just in the street outside or in the park over the roads, you suddenly felt uh, to your own astonishment and amazement that, 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 that hands that have been holding the saddle, you know, and guiding you up to that, whether it was a, an older sibling or a parent, was suddenly not there. And you couldn't quite believe it as you glanced back and realized that what was propelling you forward at the age of four or five or six was actually you yourself. And the reason I think that that moment... I mean, how many people can actually remember that moment? I would wager quite a lot, right? Show of hands. So put your hands up, like the first, exactly. It's almost yeah. everybody. And I think the reason we do remember that, and we don't remember what we had for tea the next day or the day before, is because of the meaning that we invest in that moment and what it represents. And it re represents, frankly, um, nothing short of freedom. You know, it's in your infant life, that's the first moment when you feel... I can ride away from shit. He's like, so long, suckers. I can go. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. And that smell of freedom in your nostrils. And uh, that's why uh, it means an awful lot. And so I do remember it. it happened in a field in Hampshire in a village called Shedfield. And my dad was the guiding hand. Shedfield? Cool. <laughs> I imagine there's a lot of sheds. <laughs> How many bikes do you have? Um, <laughs> I've got... I have an unnecessary amount of Bromptons. You have more than one Brompton? I've got three. <sighs> That's too many. It is too many. Um, <laughs> it is too many Bromptons. I've got three Bromptons. I'm opening shortly a Chapter 3 Brompton Museum. Yeah. <laughs> I have the entire evolution of the Chapter 3 Brompton in a shed, funnily enough, at the back of my house. Um, I have got a uh, Boardman. You can see the common thread here. <laughs> And uh, locked up over there, and hopefully still there, I've got by far my favourite bike. Outside? Which is, yeah, a little bit over there. Ooh, um, I have got by far my favourite bike, which is just a mongrel, bust-up, beaten-up hybrid of all sorts of different piece, bits and pieces that have been replaced by mechanics who know what they're doing and not by me down the years and somehow kept on a life support system. And that's by far my favourite bike. I also have a, a bike that I keep at Hearn Hill and occasionally ride on the track, uh, an old 80-pound track bike. Um, and... Uh, and that's it, yeah. So however many that is, six, something like that. Yeah, I was like, uh... <laughs> and oh, I, my friend, what 
What kind of type? What type of cycling do you do? Are you mainly a commuter? You're doing a little bit of track, you said. No, I'm. 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 I'm a. I do a little bit of track. I've let it go a little bit. I ride with the old gits down at Hernhill, you know, on Wednesday and Thursday mornings, increasingly slowly. Um, and I, we race. Funnily enough, that's the only time I've ever raced in my life. Racing is an unutterably unpleasant experience. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. Um, no, but almost all. I mean, ninety-eight percent of the way I use a bike is um, locomotion. You know, it's to get from A to B. It's by far the best thing in my life, and that includes my children. Uh, Bites and children. It's just great. It's it's a great. It's a great thing to do. But that process has been quite uh, kind of slow in happening. I think when I first got back on a bike as an adult. So you know, I I was one of the many, many millions of people here, as I've described, who rode a kid, rode as a kid, and then as soon as you discover that it's you're 17 and you're 18 and it's not cool anymore, you forget about it, and then you you know in your 30s when the paunches develop and all that, a lot of people are doing that, and you kind of like you're forced. Oh, okay cycling that's a thing again and then when I got got into it as an adult I went completely into it very quickly you know very quickly I was clipped in very quickly I was in lycra and I couldn't imagine a bike ride that wasn't fully helmets mitts you know clipped in shoot and all that until someone kind of looked at me and said what the hell you're just actually trying there is another way of doing it and then over a process of a number of years I kind of delycrified my life again and, and detoxified it to the point where you have to you have to force me into Lycra now. I mean, it's really kind of, I have an aversion to the stuff and will only do it on those rare occasions when I have to go on a long ride in the country. I don't like the countryside very much and I don't like riding in the countryside very much uh, because people drive really fast in the opposite direction towards you. That does happen in London as well. <laughs> um, so I've got your book. Wow. One of them, right? You've got yeah. a couple. I've got, a few. I've got um, how I won the yellow jumper. Yes. <laughs> yellow jumper, I love that. I was <laughs> yeah. like, um, that's a different cover. I got like yeah. told off for that, but anyway, yeah. this one's the pretty one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's why I got it. I'm just kidding. Um, there is a passage. Uh, I'm really enjoying this, by the way, because it's talking about what page your. You this is on page twenty-four. No, no, I've gone further. I've gone he further. Knows. He knows. <laughs> how many pages? Remind me, how many pages are there in total? Roughly? Uh, well, you've got a really big appendix. It's over 350. Three, yeah, 376. 376 so pages. So I've got some ways to go. Okay. But, I mean, from the get-go, there's been some very entertaining passages. And this is like commentating on one of those endlessly long, boring stages of the Tour de France. <laughs> 374 kilometers to go today, and we just passed through 24K. Yeah, here we are. The breakaway has gone. <laughs> um, Around about in the last 10 pages, it gets really exciting. Well, can I just skip the middle? Then? <laughs> there are no intermediate sprints. <laughs> I really enjoyed how you talk about how you really didn't know what the fuck was going on. Yep. Um, because it made me feel better now that I'm... I, this was no, my first know. year. Yeah, because we don't know what the fuck yeah. is going on. Uh, my first year watching the Tour de France this year, really. And I'm like, what? Why? Why did they do... What? Uh, okay. And then it's like, oh, I'm not the only one. you know. And you narrate it really well. And it's very entertaining. And I picked up on a particular passage where you talk extensively about leg shaving um, because I really enjoy it. It's weird to me. 
you know, it's how much people, my boyfriend loves it. And I'm like, okay, I don't shave my legs, but I'm happy he's happy. Um, so, but I wanted to read that passage um, so people can get a taste of this. Um, frankly, on that first tour, I was still at the stage where the shaved leg thing was making me writhe with mirth and misunderstanding. I would chuckle at all those smooth-skinned men in shorts all over the place, and I was troubled by visions of them in all their bathtubs, wreathed in bubbles in the style of a Kame soap advertisement, stretching their legs skywards as they glided their razors down their shin bones. I was reminded of a passage in Matt Seaton's excellent, excellent book, The Escape Artist, in which he ponders the practicalities of leg shaving. The question for him was not so much why as where to stop. How high should the shaved area extend? Should it stop as soon as necessary at the line of the shorts, creating a hairy trunks effect? Or should it perhaps extend much higher, possibly even incorporating, well, everything? <laughs> so we have an audience question. Who here shaves their legs? <laughs> Good question, yeah. One, very few. Two, three. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's like shy hat. There's a proud hand out back. There's a proud hand. <laughs> and then we must ask Ned. Ned? Well, <laughs> um, no, no, I don't. I have on occasion, and I have to say, it's incredibly difficult. Um, it takes a lot of uh, talent, actually, doesn't it? And I knees are very complex, aren't they? There's all sorts of. Um, yeah. <laughs> There angles. are knee bits. I think that's a medical term. There's a knee bit that everyone has, or at least I really hope everyone has. Otherwise, uh, just there, there's a bony knee bit on either side, on the outer knee. I think that's a technical term. That is known as a knee bit. And um, this is the bit that I have never shaved my legs without cutting. Uh, so, ah. And, I'm, and the, the first time, I think I describe it in that book, the, f the, the first time I shaved my legs was actually because. Chris Boardman had uh, suggested that we would ride up Mont Ventoux the following day, and I'd add a bottle of wine. <laughs> so in an Ibis hotel at the foot of Mont Ventoux, at midnight, in the shower, I decided... In the shower? Oh, this will take about five minutes. <laughs> I thought you meant the wine in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, exactly, a shower isn't a good idea. And so, but about an hour and a half later, I staggered out like the end scene of Platoon. <laughs> just bleeding from it and um and the, the following morning <laughs> the legs were just covered in little bits of toilet paper and all. so i don't i don't shave my legs anymore i'm more preoccupied with the amount of hair growing out of my ears <laughs> as my 50s approach yum mm. yes you have, you have that to look forward to no then we're on to uh well we can go to a commercial break if you yeah, want yeah to... this is hard all right we're going to show a video in a second. We want to recreate the feeling of what it's like to not know, but you're in charge. And so you have to fake it so you make it. You're now a seasoned commentator, but we're going to play a, a short race on the screen. Um, There's no music, sadly. There won't so we'll be any sound, I think. But um, we so have to commentate. You have your printout under the and we've chair. Got the this names. is my start list, is it? Yep. Okay. Is that what it's called? It's a start, yes, start, a start list. list. That's what, yeah, start list, yeah. Start list. <laughs> and these are all confirmed starters, are they? Yes. Are sure <laughs> uh, all of right. them are confirmed. Yeah, yes. right. they will be there. Right. <laughs> so. so I'll just be like... It's a very small <laughs> peloton, isn't it? <laughs> oh, there we are. Sidewinder. Oh, that's Sidewinder. Ah, oh, it's a beautiful day here on the track. 
Welcome to Japan World Cup 3, everybody. How are you doing, Alex? I'm good. How are you, Ned? I thought you were going to just take it from there. That's no. <laughs> okay. And, and, and off. <laughs> oh, I can see absolute unit. Oh, uh, no. Dick Dastardly. Dick Dastardly's doing yeah, quite so well. This is Dick Dastardly coming up first. He's, he's got a new hair. He's got a new done today. closely by Sidewinder. <laughs> And then we have the Barn Sisters coming up behind Sidewinder. <laughs> Jenny, who do we have there? This is Ninja. Can't see him very well. And who very do we have good. there, Ned? Sorry? Who's that? Is that? Oh, it's Who's the that? unit. You've got it on your oh, sheet. Yeah. Absolute unit. <laughs> who's that one? Come on, Ned. Who's All right, come, come on. on. You need a little bit of help here, don't you? Yeah, who's this? Well, number eight there. There's triple that. I'm going to go straight to horse racing commentary yeah. mode. I'm going to give you all this out. Number nine, mecha horse, mecha horse, mecha horse, which is apparently a meme from something on the internet. I was told about it. It felt a little bit old when you explained that to me. Absolute unit there in the middle of the Yeti. Over for the second time over the Melling Road. And it's all gone a bit grand national on us. How far is this race? It's a long Really probably far too long for this section of the podcast. Oh, Nonetheless, what's, yet, what's up for Yeti? Yeti's swinging his arm. Yeti's going for it. Sidewinder oh, oh, is trying to keep it. I am the walrus oh. is coming up. So <laughs> with one far. furlong to go and the bunch still together, we'll go to a short break. <laughs> Dick dastardly, it's losing the, it at the, the bar. Sisters, sisters are pulling out a stretch. The bar is stretching out. They're fighting. Yeah, Mechahorse oh, is no. throwing up. Well, that's clearly the commissaires are going to have to look very, very closely at that. That oh is feeding God. in the final. Uh, number triple, eight, though, triple threat. Oh, triple threat. Just coming off the wheel, and triple threat yeah. takes the win. Did that really just happen? Yeah. <laughs> and it's quadruple threat for the win. Well done. Well done. Well done, us. Uh, I was going to say, did you have tips? Commentating. Oh, yeah. Do you have three tips? Well, I don't think we did very well there, yeah, but we tried commentating. Damn best. It's quite helpful to when uh, that just one person talks at any given time. <laughs> oh, shit! Oh, I, you know, it adds to the atmosphere. Yeah. Drink, no, man. no, that's that's. <laughs> Go. Just gonna have a beer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's tip number one. What's tip number two? Uh, well, tip number two is I think that you have to uh, – it's quite a complex job, actually. In some ways uh, – do you want me to give you a serious answer? Yeah. No, What's maybe not. Sound? Oh, it's the old YouTube autoplay, isn't Classic. it? Huh? Classic. Terribly treacherous, that is. Yeah. I was going to give you a sensible answer, but I can't be bothered. <laughs> so, fuck Next, it. what have we got next? Um, How did that compare to your first tour experience? <laughs> that's a very yeah, – it's not dissimilar in many ways. <laughs> Not dissimilar. I mean, you spoke about, you, you watched the Tour de France for the first time this year, you said, yeah? So imagine being in that p position of complete bewilderment, <laughs> like... but with one of these in your hand <laughs> and the camera pointing at you and being cast. So that was that li literally me. I mean, so the yellow jumper phrase, which was obviously a misinterpretation of the yellow jersey, uh, has kind of stuck with me. Although I still think it's, um, I, I, I do think it's the cycling world being a bit over picky. Because it's just, it's knitwear, isn't it? Uh, and uh, I think they're being a bit precious about it. But it was kind of, a, like, apparently it's quite important to call it the yellow jersey and not the jumper. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, the funny thing was, it did take me probably, probably three or four years before of actually being on the race and watching it every single day close up 
So that's four months, you know, three or four months of watching the Tour de France before I felt even remotely qualified to express an opinion that was even worth having, let alone someone listening to. So to, to go from to go from that to kind of being the bloke who has to, alongside David Miller, my co-commentator, has to kind of call, call it call the race move by move, uh, has been a long journey actually. I mean, it's six, 16 years actually. Um, so, uh, but it's, it's a tremendously rewarding sport, but it is a very very hard code to crack right at the beginning. But for that, that's that's why it's good, isn't it? That's why it gives so much back. You know, it because it isn't uh, what's a really shit sport. Badminton. Golf. It's not badminton, is it? It's not. There's more to it than that. You know, cricket. No, I quite like, see, I quite like cricket. Uh-oh. I quite like cricket. Golf's quite crap. Golf's quite crap. So I, just, I know yeah. someone in the audience who loves golf, but, uh, but I'll tell you, you where she's sitting in a minute. So the second year, though, when the, did they? Or were you forced to do it? They were like, you doing this or you're out of a job? Or did you no, say, yeah, no, I'll that's do a that very, that's again. a very good point, actually. I came back from that month and I, I had simultaneously loved and hated it. I knew, I mean, I'd been a broadcaster for a number of years and I knew that I had done some of the worst work of my life. You know, that was, that was unequivocal. I had failed at almost every turn. So I kind of assumed that they wouldn't want me back anyway. And frankly, I'd been bowled over by how tired I was at the end of it and how kind of difficult the whole job was logistically. And uh, so I walked away thinking, well, that's a job I'm never going to do again. A, they won't want me, and B, I don't want to do it again. And that was kind of August in 2003. But come the spring of... And this happens to me still, you know, come the spring of 2004, when the first whiff of kind of like... By the way, I bought a bike at the end of that race. That's how infantile I was. So I started cycling. And then come the spring, I suddenly thought, oh, hang on. I wonder if they might contact me about that Tour de France job again. (laughs) And funnily enough, out of the blue, they did the damn fools. And from that moment on, it kind of moved on to a next, another level. I'd passed that first test somehow. Nice. Well yeah. done. Uh, my question was, do you place bets on the tour? <laughs> um, I, 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 I don't. Um, I know a co-commentator who I work with occasionally. <laughs> who does. Who does. <laughs> and uh, I know how many bets, with what frequency, and what's at stake. And it is significant. And uh, I am absolutely in awe of this particular co-commentator at his ability not to allow his partiality to come through at certain moments. Um, Cycling is one of those very difficult sports to bet on, I think, because uh, lots and lots and lots and lots of people on any given day won't win. So... Uh, you can imagine that if you look at the odds, they are most of them are 100 to 1, you know. And you kind of look at that and go, wow, that's amazing, 100 to 1. If um, Niels Pollitt wins today, I'm going to have five pounds on that and that's going to make me 500 quid. And so what, I'll only lose. But you know what? They're 100 to 1 because they literally won't win, you know. <laughs> In other words, and that actually quite reflects on what road racing is all about and, again, why it makes it not badminton or golf. Um, there are very few winners. And there are people who go through their entire career, like Charlie Bugalius, who never won a professional bike race. And yet he was one of the best riders in the peloton. You know, it's uh, fascinating, that. I think it's really interesting. Yeah, because I was going to lead on to say, did you expect Geraint Thomas to win this year? Did everybody, or, you know? Well, no. No. Yeah. No. And, um, and, I, and I, I expected Chris Froome to win this year, or Tom Dumoulin. Um, 
And actually, you know, it's, it's kind of hard when you're bound up in the race, but now a, a few weeks have, have um, elapsed and you can look back on it. Uh, you realize, actually, quite obviously, and it didn't seem that obvious at the time or that important, but you realize that Chris Froome lost the, the Tour de France on stage one at the first possible opportunity when he somersaulted over his bike and ended up on his arse in a, in a field. He got back on remarkably quickly, but that day he lost 51 seconds and he never regained... He never took the lead of the race and he never actually regained the leadership of his team. And it was a crash that was a something and nothing kind of crash, really. But actually, that crash gave Geraint Thomas the opportunity to ride for victory. And he didn't, he didn't do anything wrong for that. So I, I didn't. No, I thought Chris Froome would win the Tour de France. And uh, do you have a pick for La Vuelta? No, I was saying this today. I don't know. I mean, La Vuelta seems to disappear off people's radars a little bit. But it's a wonderfully interesting race. Uh, I'm commentating on it every day from London with, with David, just for the highlights. And we were just saying today, I won't do any spoilers because some of you might have recorded the thing, but I was just saying today that honestly, you can, at this point, midway through the race, there are at least five riders who you can make a proper argument that they might win. And all of them, each of them, whether it's Naira Quintana, Rigoberta Uran, Wilco Kelderman, Simon Yates, uh, in their own way, and there's probably a bunch of others I've forgotten, uh, would be a really amazing story if they did. So uh, watch the race. It's brilliant. Yeah. There are a lot of crashes as well. So <laughs> Always it's exciting. It's un- crashy, actually. Yeah. Well, I, thought, I saw something the other day and I was like, yes. But, um, yeah. yeah. They don't crash like they used to. It was more exciting about <laughs> 10 years ago. Ah, the old days. I remember, I remember my first crash. Tour de France. So I had that amazing yellow jumper day, the first day when David Miller messed everything up and I said yellow jump. Anyway, that was the prologue. Stage one the next day was a big bunch sprint. And I remember... Still to this day, I don't think I've seen a bigger crash than the one that happened that day in the final couple of kilometres. And it seemed to involve not just the 198 riders of the Tour de France, but their friends and family as well. (laughs) It was enormous high-speed crash. And the guy who came off worst in that crash was the Francaise de Jeux sprinter, Sandy Cazar. And, uh, no, sorry, I got his name wrong. Jimmy Casper. Jimmy Casper basically lost half his arse that day. Um, I have never seen skin loss like it. And he continued, he continued to the end of the Tour de France that day, uh, on that race uh, with uh, just enormous amounts of skin missing from his backside. It's <laughs> probably lighter, so it's probably faster. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, a little bit. I saw, him, I saw him last year on the Tour de France. No, He's not lighter that's anymore. That's hardcore shaving. <laughs> well, we knew you'd be a pro at live shows because... You've got a new one coming out now, but you've done, you did one uh, previously. Sorry, Your I did a what? live show. A live show, yes. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Um, what was it like the first time you did a live show? You've done Bicology, haven't you? Yes. And yes. you had another one after Bicology, I think. I, I, did, I did like um, all good hamming, jobbing actors do. You do one show and you tour it like comedians, and because it's kind of stand-up comedy, you do one show, and then you do it again. (laughs) (laughs) The same as having to write a new show. So you squeeze a bit more life out of it. And I I taught that show over two years in the autumn, last year and the year before. Uh, I think we did more than 40 shows, one way or the other. But it is kind of just me and a bunch of stuff and video, a bit like you're doing with kind of like pictures and videos and bits and pieces like that um, in theatres. But this year... I kind of figured out from touring my last show that actually what people, and I guess the reason I guess a lot of you are here tonight, kind of really want to 
remember and talk about and reflect on and laugh about is the Tour de France because it draws people in in a way that uh, kind of nothing else does in the cycling world. It's like this giant sun in the middle of the solar system and everything else revolves around it. And it's just the way it is. So I've kind of distilled the essence of the comedy that I feel about cycling with all the weird digressions and historical references and bits and pieces down to the story of this year's Tour de France, which I kind of retell in a rambling, chaotic manner. Um, Ev, we have a slide. You have a slide? Yeah, there's well, a slide. it's just... There it is. It's Tour de, Tour de, Tour de Ned. Nah, not nicked at all from Kraftwerk. No. Nah. 21-stage Grand Tour with all the boring bits cut out. There you go. And that's it, yes. And it starts at the end of... September. You're kind of all over. September. You're like all over the place. You're touring it everywhere. Um, uh, uh, everywhere except for Wales, because oh. what do they know about cycling? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to ask if uh, you didn't know anything about the tour, like maybe us, uh, but you liked bikes. Is it still worth going to your show? No, not, nah, no, not okay. really. No. Cool. <laughs> all right, next. Only, no. only hardcore roadies <laughs> who shave their legs. You're you like a checking legs. You would do like a shaving leg workshop. <laughs> There's no live leg shaving. Although if that brings in the floating punters and fills up the last ten seats in the auditorium, I can always introduce it. Yeah, yeah. Um, what else do you have coming up? As if you don't have enough. On I'm your more plate, worried about what you've got coming up. To be <laughs> well, well tomorrow I am commentating on the Vuelta, and I will be for the foreseeable. I'm doing. If anyone's interested, I don't. Know if, are there still tickets available for next Monday? I don't. Possibly. Yeah, uh, that I'll mention that in a second as well. So um, this Monday, you're right. That's quite close, isn't it? In five days' time, I am doing, I'm testing the material that I have kind of written but not memorised at all for this show. And I'm doing it in a live, in front of a live audience in South London at Stanley Halls in Norwood. And uh, tickets are still available a few, so do come along and please uh, pack the place out and um, tell me if they're terrible ideas. I'm doing that on Monday. We'll be there. <laughs> okay, you're very, you're very welcome. Taking notes. And, uh, and, and then, uh, so an event has just, talking about Wales, an event has just been announced um, today uh, or tomorrow or something, or very soon, that um, we are doing, like, I am interviewing Geraint Thomas uh, in Wales, in Cardiff, in an arena the Motor Point Arena. So kind of cycling has now gone arena big, um, which is a kind of huge, huge thing, really. And I think probably, I don't know if there's any Welsh folk here. There probably is. But I don't think, I'm certainly not Welsh. And I think in our London bubble, I don't think we quite appreciate what an impact Thomas's uh, achievements have made in the, in, in the country of Wales and uh, quite the status he enjoys there. So that would be interesting. Yeah. That sounds yeah. amazing. Um, any more books? Yes, I've got a book on. coming out in the winter. About darts. Darts? Yes. That is just a curveball. The sport that makes grown large men cry. The sport that makes grown large grown large men cry, yes. <laughs> with, with one yeah, really muscly arm. Yeah, it's yeah. my favourite. <laughs> Quite genuinely, it's been a passion of mine for a few years. I absolutely love the sport. I, I broadcast, I go and, and do it. So, and also, it is the furthest removed from cycling that I could possibly get to and still roughly be within the sporting spectrum like that. Because... Um, Cycling's played out over 200 kilometers and mountain ranges, and darts is um, just under seven foot. <laughs> like that. Uh, but the same anti doping procedures are applied. Um, well, I think <coughs> we're going to have to get serious now. Yes. Put you in the hot seat. And we wanted to talk about women's sport. 
Yes. Um, we feel it needs better coverage, better opportunities, more diversity, and we wanted to ask you, what do you think you can do to help the scene, but then also what we can do and what all of us can do? That's a, 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 it's a very good question. It's a really important question, actually, um, because the cycling world is completely unbalanced. You know, the, the professional men's peloton bears scant relationship, frankly, with the, with the women's peloton. If we're, talking about, if we're talking about road racing, it kind of equals itself out a little bit in the Olympic cycle where women's track racing, but it's only once every four years, in, does enjoy a similar-ish, if not parity, you know, sort of status with the achievements of the men, at least in this culture, it does. Um, so that's a kind of slightly separate issue, but I think you're probably talking about women's racing, aren't you? And, and you know, where's the women's Tour de France? Where's the consistent presence on TV and all that sort of thing? Um, I think it's, I think it's a, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding in this debate that I've engaged with quite often because people quite often ask the media, well, what are you doing about it? To which the easy reply is, uh, I'm just a hired hand. You know, I, I don't, by sports rights, you know, it's not down to me actually. Um, in any sense, I can go onto forums like this and I can implore people to get on board. But if you take a broadcaster like ITV, for whom I do most of my broadcast work, um, they are—they're a business, right? And they—the—they they are only going to invest in a sport if they can sell advertising space around it and enough eyeballs get on board to watch it that it's worth their while. They are not. They have no um, motive beyond that, frankly. They're not interested in, in PR. They're not there to support women's racing unless it serves their cause. Now, interestingly, and this is really interesting if you, if you think about the, the way forward and the path into a better future for, for women's cycling. ITV, through no uh, motivation other than making money, I suspect, bought into the women's tour, the, the week-long race in the United Kingdom, from the, from the word go, and gave it similar status to uh, a lot of the men's racing that they show. In other words, hour-long, nightly, daily highlight, <clears throat> excuse me, highlights and televised it. A race that hadn't existed, was dreamt up like that and ended up in its first iteration on the telly every single day for five consecutive days. That's quite an achievement, actually. And in those opening couple of years when Mariana Voss and Lizzie Deignan were winning the race... Um, it, it, it made a big impact and ITV were extremely pleased with it in terms of what they got out of it. I think the interest might have dipped a little bit over, I mean, it's still good, but I think it might have just kind of the novelty values worn off a little bit. But what it suggests to me is that creating a bespoke event for the women's peloton is the way forward. Not aping the men's calendar, not doing, you know, this absolute car crash of an event that the Tour de France insist on bolting on to the month of racing that they have called La Course, which is, they cannot make it more obvious, ASO, that this is something they're not interested in. We'll shunt it around the calendar, we'll have a crit race on the Champs-Élysées that no one watches, and then we'll, oh, can we just do it up a mountain and hope that that works and all that sort of thing? It felt very one step forward and two steps back when they reduced it from two to one day. Yeah. Uh, it was I mean, like... <laughs> well, they yeah. don't... Uh, like, the, why? The, the desire isn't there, I don't think. The desire isn't there. Tour de Yorkshire, which is actually also an ASO racer doing it slightly better. They've grown their women's... I mean, there's absolutely no reason in my mind why it shouldn't be four days like the men. Yep. Uh, um, but you know what? I don't think that's the future for women's road racing. You know, being the support act earlier on in the day, in inverted commas, for the men's race, that's not what it's about. It's about the standalone 
uh, particular races with their own identity, like if you talk to anyone in the women's peloton, the biggest race in their calendar is the Giro Rosa in Italy. Has anyone seen any footage of the Giro Rosa? It doesn't exist. And if, if, tele, if television isn't there, the race doesn't exist. But that's the one to invest in, you know. So how, how do you grow? I don't know. I think, so we touched on earlier, I was trying to think about genuinely practical suggestions and a thing that you could maybe do and attract sponsors to. And I can only think about the UK market. So here's, a, here's an example of what might be possible. Um, there are genuine stars in the women's track scene in this country. Always have been, probably always will be. Like the likes of Katie Archibald, Eleanor Barker and Laura Trott. You know, f to name but a few at the moment. And there are some internationally recognised stars as well, like Kirsten Vild, Mariana Voss could be uh, approached and probably would come on. And, you know, th and that's just scratching the surface. Why don't we have a couple of days at the London Velodrome of just women's racing? Just build a women's six-day, you know, rather than that kind of... And that would be a, a, little, a, a little thing that would stand alone and, and might have its own identity separate from the men and might be a phenomenal success. I think the tickets would be easy to sell for the live event. And if it's a full auditorium, you've probably got a chance of getting a broadcaster interested as well. So, you know, my, 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 my inclination is do it separately. Don't look to tag yourself onto the men's events always, you know. But... Yeah, we did an interview go. with Helen Wyman. You can listen to it on our SoundCloud or iTunes if you haven't. But she, just to kind of lead in on that, talked about in her scene in cyclocross, um, she's been a part of some women's races that have managed to get their own individual sponsors. And for those sponsors, it's amazing for them because they get a new captive audience. It's an untapped opportunity to advertise what they do. And I feel like there's a lot of that missing where if we could like, make these individual women's focused events and then approach a sponsor and say, you've got a brand new audience. You know, that's your opportunity to sell and that's your opportunity to make some money, which is a shame that's what it kind of is about. But I feel like someone's missing advertising that and saying... I, I, I totally get what you're saying, but I don't think you should be... Any of us should be naive in our approach to this because yeah, it's no... It's just at an amplified level... These are the same problems that the men's peloton faces. You know, sponsors come and go. Often in these corporations that invest into cycling, it depends on the, the whim of one person on the board of directors who happens to be a mammal. You know, I mean, li literally, this is often the way that one person really gets it and is really enthusiastic, and then they move from that company to that company, and boom, the sponsorship's gone. It's a very unstable market. And the reason, one of the reasons why it is, is because there's no ticket price. There's no turnstiles. No one's paying to get in. It's just the open road. So it relies on a weird combination of public funding from the, from the local authorities, even at the highest level of the Tour de France. You know, they pay to get the race there and then these sponsors to actually put the teams on the road. Um, so I don't think, I, you know, what we shouldn't think is the men have it so easy because I think it's very, very hard to make the men's peloton work. And that's just an indication of kind of the journey that the women's racing has to go on. But to end on a positive note, if that, this is the end of this kind of chapter of it, but to end on a positive note, I do, because I've commentated on a number of women's races now, and every single time I do it, I watch a great race, you know, and totally different in nature. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And characteristic from the men's race. And I'm, by that, I mean in a good way. Because the, the women's peloton isn't as big. And the standard, in terms of the equality of the standard, isn't as high. Um, it uh, is less controlled. And one of the real problems about the men's peloton is that it is too controlled. Sky just sky the race to death over and over and over again. And you don't you see that much less with the women's peloton, where all right, you get your dominant teams, but within that, other teams are able to express themselves, and individuals come to the fore. And I think that's a pattern that you see quite often. So it's bloody good racing, and that is a real positive that I think the women's peloton needs to need to work on and sell, you know? What about things that we could do? I mean, is it worth contacting sponsors to encourage them? Like, Ovo sponsors the, the Tour of Britain right now. And the women's race, I think. And the, yeah, and like, you know, what if we all just decided to change our energy company to them? It's a bit, like, I'm doing it because what, you're doing good when things. When you say, what, do we, what should we do? What do you mean by we? I mean, Everyone who's, here. Everyone like, here. You know, we all can do something. Well, we need to encourage every female we know to ride a bike. Like, that's a really good starting point. You know, it's still a majority male activity. I mean, riding around London, it's still... It's, I, 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 perhaps it's changing. I don't know what the figures suggest, but it's still... It's not, it's not... You know, it's not... It doesn't... So more women need to ride. So we need to kind of, like, get that message out. And that, that I think, because I'm fed up with... I don't even know how to advance the debate about accessing that section of... That 95% of the population of this country that doesn't touch a bike. I don't know how to do it anymore to reach out to them. I'm kind of like... So, so then you have to go back to the micro level and spread the word amongst your associates in a human one-to-one way and kind of like germinate it from there. And I think that can have an effect. In the workplace, I think it's really important. We all, you know, some of us at least have jobs. Um, I don't really. I'm just making it up as I go along. But I, I think that's where it starts at a really kind of basic level. And I think if more women get on, I mean, that's how lots of people get sucked into following road racing, like your good self, you know. So that's where it starts, I think, actually turning the pedals again. Because every girl, when they were young, has that shared experience with which we began that this whole conversation about, you know, for the first time riding a bike. So tap down into that. Don't make it such a male activity. And try to watch races when we can. Even though, sadly, most of the time they put these women races on, you can't really watch it. But I do my best. I always try really hard here as well, at Little Mom No Hands, to screen it. But sometimes it's such a nightmare to screen it. You know, you have to go on some silly website and use some, like, portal thing. The dark web. <gasps> a dark web women cycling. <laughs> Get that good shit. <laughs> it's hard, but, yeah. And you, you make a very good point. I remember doing a, 
an event similar to this. Well, not that similar to this, actually, but... Um, <laughs> But uh, with Lizzie Armitstead, as she was, a, a number of years ago, and I said to her, do you sometimes just get back to your flat and actually stick the DVD player on or get the you know, telly back on and actually just watch some of your races back to relive those moments of glory? And she went, no. And I went, why? And she said, because they weren't bloody televised. There are no pictures, you know, which is kind of like a really quite sobering moment. I thought, well, yeah, she's absolutely right, so... Well, uh, <laughs> now for something a bit easier. If we have um, a slide. Slide. Just your, it's your Twitter page. Twitter tells us that you live in Lewisham. I do, li I do live in you Lewisham, do? yes. C confirm or deny. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, li I live in Lewisham, yes. Yeah, I've lived there for a long time. Um, uh, how do you feel about cycling in London? Commuting around? Passionate, yeah. You love it? I absolutely yeah. love it. Like I said, the countryside doesn't do it for me at all, no. I love it. I mean, what a, you know, God, it's got its faults. And yes, the Sustrans network is ridiculous. And the quiet ways are almost lethal at times. Um, <laughs> and yes, the flipping segregate, you know, the, the stretch along the embankment is at five o'clock in the evening, full of idiots coming towards you, racing to get back to Surrey. Um, so it has lots of flaws, but you know what? Uh, what I love about it is that the, I think you used the word earlier on about diversity. And it gives me great pleasure when I come to stop at a red traffic light. <laughs> Does he get a cheer for that? When I come to well stop. Done, Ned. When I come to stop at a red traffic light, at, at one of those uh, very motorist free stop zones, where you seldom get motorbikes. And when, I, and when I pull up at one of these red lights, uh, particularly uh, kind of like, you know, five o'clock in the evening or nine o'clock in the morning, and there are a shitload of cyclists. I mean, so many more than there were 10 years ago. So many more. Um, it gives me enormous amount of pleasure to kind of like just stop and look from side to side and look at everyone the way everyone's kitted out. Because no two people are identical apart from all those idiots who live in Surrey. <laughs> Apart from them, everyone has got a bit of flair and individuality about them. Um, and I, I really like that because, you know, that is a kind of bespoke tailoring thing that goes on uh, there that I, I, I really admire. And then everyone gets slightly weirded out because I'm staring at them. The idea of you like... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Why can't, by the way, why can't we have conversations in those moments? I try and strike up conversations, but it never goes well. <laughs> it literally never goes well. How I want to know what you say. Are you just like hello? No, well, no, I can't. I, I comment. Do you like bikes? Why <laughs> <laughs> are you like? Oh, it's on the telly. <laughs> what do you think about advancing women's yeah. cycling? <laughs> oh, the car just slowly like winds the window up. Uh, we have another slide, Ev. So you quit the Metro. Yeah. Do you remember this tweet? This was like last week, wasn't it? Yeah, this happened a couple of weeks ago, didn't it? Um, I, I, for the last five or six years, I've been writing during the Tour de France a column for Metro, which is that uh, newspaper that you get on the tube and then leave on the tube. But it has a massive circulation. It's a big organization. And I've, um, I, I like writing. I liked writing that column. I, uh, the people who edit the sports pages are real advocates of uh, getting cycling onto the back pages, actually. Uh, and so um, so this is quite a difficult thing to do. But they, they're a different arm of Metro, uh, just joined in in this 
totally endless, seemingly unstoppable barrage of ill-informed and frankly dangerous um, dog whistling uh, in the mainstream media about cycling. Which um, and the reason it's kind of like really got my goat is because of my lived experience as a, as a cyclist and all of our lived experiences, I imagine. The danger that uh, we feel on a on an almost daily basis from the aggression that we are that is meted out our way, whether it's verbal or physical, um, is no laughing matter. And I can't remember the real nature of the tweet, but they misinterpreted some near miss flipping situation. I think that was it. And uh, they did the kind of classic victim blaming thing about the, 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 the rider who was nearly run, literally nearly take, taken out by a left turning truck should have been aware of what this vehicle was doing. No, yeah, no, I don't no, know. no. Did no, anybody no. here see this? Yeah. So it would have, yeah. And it was, um, it was just one of those moments where it was a straw that broke the camel back, uh, camel's back. And I knew that sooner or later I would be at an event like this, possibly doing a Q&A and someone would go, what do you think about your employers? And um, rather than let that happen to me, I decided to let it happen to them, actually. And uh, I resigned. Well done. Which means that at the moment, I haven't got a newspaper to write for. Does anybody here write a newspaper? <laughs> That's good, because the Metro's owned by the Daily Mail. We have another slide, Ev, if you can... Get the special, the special slide. Special slide. Oh, I saved oh, it as a PDF by mistake. Um, so there's a new law being banded about, about dangerous cyclists. Um, today they dropped plans to include cyclists and other vulnerable road users in a... I just saw on Bike Biz, just, they just dropped scribbled? it. Yeah, I scribbled that real bad. But they dropped it today, actually, I saw on Bike Biz. Just look at this. They dropped Look the at plans. this image. What? What am I looking at? We're a looking dangerous, at a dangerous cyclist. cyclist. This is a dangerous cyclist. Yes, it's actually. Is he having dangerous thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> it's from um, which we're going to go on to next, but it's from Richard's yeah. bicycle book. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just love this image. But um, we wanted to know your thoughts about this law. But it and also dangerous it. cyclists. Yeah, well, they dropped it today, so, so we were like, a, "Damn it! A, do I tear this up? Throw it away!" Yeah. <laughs> We were just wanted to jokingly ask you, what do you think about dangerous cyclists? Well, they dropped it. Yeah. Well, I, 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 so a thing that was a thing isn't a thing. Yeah. Okay. But okay, some, so some no, no, what you're talking about is thing. changing yeah. the law to make a bespoke law about the terrible dangers of cyclists running you over. Yeah. In reference to the lady who was killed by the uh, guy riding the fixie. Yeah. 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 Well, I actually, I mean, this may or may not chime with your thinking and, and might surprise you. I, I think that's okay. I think that's fine to change the law, actually. <laughs> it probably needed updating. Um, what isn't fine is the endless bloody attention that was paid to this one particular case. You know, very, very specific bits of hugely irrelevant law that get activated once in a generation, like this one is, are constantly being updated and changed. And no one plays a blind bit of attention to them. It's probably for the right. We're constantly moving and, you know, bettering the law and refining it to keep up with technology and all this sort of thing. In this particular case, it seems to be the easy thing to do uh, for the media is just to write a bloody clickbait story about it. And, and again, it comes back to the Metro story, doesn't it? So, I mean, I, I don't object to it necessarily per se. It's just irrelevant. It's just irrelevant. Agreed. Okay, back to the Richard slide, Ev. Pretty please. Um, so maybe for some of you that don't know, 
when we first started out on the podcast, uh, very much inspired by my dad wrote a porno. Um, we decided to clutch to a book because we didn't know what other content we had. And we were very nervous about what we had to say and that if anybody cared. So we would read from Richard Ballantyne's bicycle book. Uh, I actually now have the new bicycle book. The new edition. Look at that face. Look at that smile. And so we would read excerpts from Richard's book. And we found that a book written in the 70s still was relevant to today, which was just really fun. So now, Ned, you were going to read from this book for us. The passes. So... Wait, 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 wait. But before you <laughs> but, start, yeah, before you start, before you, you start can... though, um, again, referencing your your book, you said that one of the trickiest things on camera is the art of looking pleasantly interested in what the other person is saying while not actually looking at them. While you're reading this, me and Alex need to practice this. What are your tips uh, for us? Channel your inner Chris Boardman. What is have it? you I got an know. inner Chris Boardman? No, I don't have an inner Chris Boardman. Okay, have you got <laughs> an outer Chris Boardman? So, what you have to, Chris? What you have, what you have to do is imagine that there's a camera over there and that yeah. Gary Imlach is talking and you're... Just nod. Okay, that's what you got. There. That's it, you're there. <laughs> right. So I've got to read this paragraph out. That, that, and then that. Yeah. Okay. And I'm sorry, I haven't seen this before. Just so you know, this is not uh, something I've prepared. (laughs) Bicycle racing is quite specialized and involved. (laughs) That's right, Richard. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) It's very good. Don't interrupt me. In racing, you compete according to age, sex, and ability. So if you are a beginner, do not worry about being trounced first time out. Most of the riders will be fairly evenly matched. Some of the greatest bike riders in the world are little shrimps. (laughs) The less weight to lug around, the better. Big people are not excluded either. Cycling has always been tremendously diverse. It's on, <laughs> on downhills, they generally have the edge. <laughs> <He's> a, <laughs> he really gets it, doesn't he? Oh, Richard is the they best. They generally have the edge. What counts in the end is fitness. <laughs> and heart. There's the psychological aspect. Bike racing is, <laughs> bike racing is an extremely rigorous sport. In skiing, running, football, and most other sports, he couldn't think of any more. <laughs> when you are finished, you drop. It's not, it's not really true, is it? When you're finished in football, you just walk off just into a dressing an room, have a shower, and get into a Maserati. <laughs> oh no, that's David Miller. Um, <clears throat> on, on a bike, a lot of weight is supported by the machine, and only... A small amount of energy is required to maintain balance. This is going somewhere, I hope. It is quite possible to run your body to the finish and beyond. Well, it'd be really weird if you stopped at the finish and not beyond. Imagine the entire peloton in a bunch sprint getting to the finish and stopping. (laughs) To the finish and beyond so that when you stop, you are unable to stand on your feet. This is true, actually. Any serious racer has to keep fit (laughs) with a year-round physical conditioning program. (laughs) 
And then the final sentence you'll be glad to know. The thing about riding as a racer or club rider is that the business of riding turns the page pure and simple. That didn't make sense. I'll try again. <clears throat> the thing about riding as a racer or club rider is that the business is riding pure and simple. It's, it's all down to you and a bike. And this is the conclusion he reaches on page 216. It's all about you and the and bike. The bike. Yeah, Woo! It's, I tell you, he's, he's absolutely right about um, racers not being able to walk or stand. That's true. They can't do either of those things. They are, fee- <laughs> they are feeble human beings. Like jelly legs. Yeah. Um, so now, are we going off to, oh, it is time for Q&A. Oh, oh great, that's relaxing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you down the rest of your drink, and then I'll hop down for okay. anybody. Mind your head. Mind your head. We should have, oh, God. yeah, health and safety. <laughs> we need to hang, like, you know, Well, you need a helmet, frankly. <laughs> there should be mandatory helmet wearing. <laughs> right here. Do we have any questions Let's for Let's ask Geraint about it. Anyone? Yes? Yes? Hi. Hello. My question is, uh, Rachel Atherton and Tani Seagrave, I mean, they're like, you know, Tani Seagrave's obviously up and coming. Rachel Atherton is going for the World Champs this weekend, and she has to rely on all her social media coverage, which she does a very good job of, as do her team. Um, I guess coming on to the, the female question, why is it then that they don't get any coverage at all, except the, the odd time in the BBC website, for instance, or something picks it out of you know and says oh she's going to win this or she's won a whole se- she's got a whole season without being unbeaten why is it that she doesn't get any coverage you know she's probably the most successful person there's a female cyclist in the UK out there isn't she yeah but it's not it's not as simple as that isn't it it's just a kind of honestly just i mean she has my sympathy you have my sympathy as a supporter of hers clearly but it's naive to think just by jumping up and down and going there's a thing that's happening that we really like and is really important therefore everybody should be interested is, is going to lead to that. You know, you have to join the dots somewhere. And these are difficult, complex dots to join. You know, take, for example, when, we, when I first joined the ITV team, we started broadcasting the Tour de France, which is a really big bicycle race. Um, 100,000 people used to watch of an evening. You know, 16 years on, it's a million. And if you add that to the half million who watched during the day, it's one and a half million. That's a big growth. But there are good reasons why that's happened. And we can all figure them out for ourselves in this country. But outside of that, you know, we sometimes races barely move the dial. You know, the Vuelta, thank you for anyone who's watching it, but it's a loyal and very small audience. You know, those are the people, they are the initiated. And we're talking about the Vuelta España. That's a grand tour. That It doesn't punch its weight. And, um, and uh, just saying it should punch its weight is... Um, it's frankly not the answer. You know, it, 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 cycling is a minority sport. It's not even up there with golf yet. It's probably not even close, actually, um, because of all the corporate sponsorship that golf will always attract. Um, it, it's, it's, it, and that is, that is a really small kind of tributary to the mainstream of, of cycling. So I actually, if I'm honest with you, I can't see that changing in the foreseeable future. But I think the organization that you mentioned there probably does have a, a bigger role to play going forward than they know about yet, because the BBC, um, are not ITV, and they're markedly different because we all pay for them and they don't advertise. And I think that as sports rights for the really big sports become unaffordable for the BBC, you know, 
there is a question to be asked as to whether or not it's worth them spending three hundred million pounds every couple of years to show Premier League highlights rights. And if they were to take that money and distribute it and actually serve a public uh, kind of function in terms of fostering television coverage of sports, that might be a bit of a game changer. So perhaps there's a national debate that is coming about the role of the BBC and it, and how it uh, divides up its sports budget. So levelling the field like your local paper almost. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But, you know, there's no magic wand here, is there, to be realistic. Hello. Um, what did you put on your CV that made ITV think you're the man for the Tour de France then? Was it, was it you, could, you could speak a bit of French? Is that all it had? No, I think it was just that um, in 2003, neither Ant or Deck were available for the... No, I mean, this is, but this says a lot about the status. I mean, you spoke about how small it was in 2003 relative to what it is now. I'm not sure ITV gave it any thought, to be honest. They'd inherited the rights from Channel 4, who didn't want it any longer, the race. They used to show it, as people know. They invested in cricket and dropped it like that. And so they paid no money for the broadcast rights. They pay an awful lot now, by the way, but they paid no money back then for the sports rights. And they, so they assembled a team of people to do it. They just said, oh, well, you can go and do it. What does it matter? He's a football reporter. Send him. You know, he'll figure it out. Uh, and I guess I did. It took me a long time. But um, so uh, nothing. There was nothing on my CV that suggested I should. Literally nothing. So it should have been you. You'd have done a better job. And my, apolo- my apologies for freezing you out of that gig. I have no. I, in defense. Hey, you Ned. Hey, uh, um, I just wanted to see, get your thoughts on the Aqua Blue team. Oh, who yeah. crumbled, was it last week? Yeah, yeah, last week. And just that, the kind of, the, how they were set up and the idea about sustainable, a sustainable cycling team and, and that idea within, the, within cycling, if that is something that is possible or will it always be, as you said, the one millionaire who has an interest or not? Yeah, I mean, they, they were they were very ambitious and it was way, way, way ambitious. And actually, uh, when the true story comes out, I wonder what was really going on with that because it was never, you know, you could have looked at his business plan on the back of a fag packet, which is probably where it was drawn up and go, that ain't going to work. That's literally not going to work. You know, I don't know what that team cost to run, but let's say, let's say it costs five million pounds to run. He's got to have to generate more than five million pounds profit out of a company that wasn't making any money. Yeah, it was, it was, they were very charismatic. I love a lot of the riders who, you know, Connor, the Connor Duns of the world and Adam Blythe and, you know, the, um, they've, they've been dealt a shit hand. But they're not the, you know, they're not the, they're not the first and they're not the last riders to be dumped in that position. That's a bad example of, of cycling sponsorship. The, the problem that I think the, the highest end of the, the men's peloton faces at the moment is, um, in all sorts of ways, is Sky. Um, because A, they're on beatable on, on, on the races that they identify that they want to win. It's very hard to beat them because of their recruitment policy. Um, uh, but B, um, their sheer presence as a sponsor is scaring off other big potential sponsors and blue chip organizations that might want to get into the sport. Because the most startling statistic I've seen in cycling uh, emerged just a couple of years ago when B Sky B published their company reports uh, that stated in black and white that the money they spend on their men's pro team amounted to 0.7 or 0.8%, not even a whole 1% of their marketing budget. Not their budget or their turnover, their marketing budget. So the money they spend on that team is spare change that they find down the back of the couch. Quick step, yeah. Although they do, they have a budget that's close to Sky's, I would imagine, if not. Yeah, they do. They pay big money quick step. They're a massive team. 
Um, they also have on their board of directors uh, a Czech oligarch and a Russian media mo- uh, sorry, a Dutch media mogul who runs most of the media in Russia and is very, very in bed with Vladimir Putin. They've got some big hitters, and they'll never struggle, I don't think, quick step. But, you know, there's no typical cycling sponsor, is there? There used to be... There used to be, uh, not so long ago, the classic cycling sponsor was a, an Italian who used to race, you know, stopped racing and then ended up running a cement company. Or Grouch or something like that, you know. Or, or, or the best one of all was the French team Agritubel, which was uh, French agricultural fencing. World Tour team. Uh, but that was kind of, that was the classic cycling sponsor, wasn't it? A, a really, really quite a small business, but with one guy who owned the business who just wanted, through his own pride and sentimentality, to own and run a cycling. But he had to bust his things to actually make it work and spent all the money that he could possibly spend and more just to keep this team afloat, you know, and that's the way it was. And also that led to the doping culture, didn't it? Because he wanted a return on his investment and he didn't care how he got it, you know? And so that was a different... So it's, it's complex, you know. On the one hand, Sky's been tremendously good for the sport in terms of its jiffy bags and all. That's a separate debate, potentially. But, you know, broadly, the direction of travel is good and Sky have been a good part of that. But in many ways, they're also a problem. Hi. So, uh, Ned, I really enjoyed the uh, Yellow Jumper book. Thank, Thank you, you very much. I particularly enjoyed all the stories of you embarrassing yourself in various colourful ways in front of <laughs> millions of viewers. Um, my question is, you've um, interviewed and commentated on and had a lot of contact with a lot of our favourite professional riders over the years. Do you have any stories of them embarrassing themselves, each other or their teams? You can leave out names. <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah, they embarrass themselves sometimes without knowing it, don't they? Cadell Evans used to do it by opening his mouth. <laughs> he was extraordinary. That year he won. And it kind of freaked him out. I mean, it's a kind of weird. This is what the remarkable thing about Geraint Thomas and his smooth progression to Paris was that at no point did it freak him out. He just went, yeah, I know, fair play, you know. <laughs> uh, oh, I've won, the, I've won, have I? Yeah. But I'll come back. But the best, the best thing about Geraint Thomas, come back to best thing about Geraint Thomas was his speech on the Champs-Élysées. This isn't directly answering that. But it was brilliant. And David and I were commentating. And as soon as he, we, well, listen, it's going to be great. Whatever happens now, it's going to be great. And he started commentating and we're going, uh, sorry, he started speaking and we're going like, oh, what's he going to say? He clearly hasn't prepared anything. And then he started, he made the cardinal mistake of starting or attempting to list his teammates. <laughs> and David nudged me. He killed the microphones and David went, he'll get three. <laughs> and then he'll forget. And he forgot Chris Froome. <laughs> and then he literally got fall down and then Tom Dumoulin had to help him out. It was brilliant. Oh, Castroville. Oh, yeah. yeah. Cheers. Castroville. Yeah, it was good. Um, Cadell Evans, to go back. So Thomas dealt with all that really well. Evans didn't, right? So he was just weird when he was in the yellow jersey. The whole business about walking into the mixed, you know, that big pen of all the media, which is insane on the Tour de France. In the yellow jersey, a post-race interview, clutching his little lion. Touch my lion. And then coming up with all those weird threats, like, you know, you touch my, touch it, I'll fucking chop your head off. All that time. Whoa, Cadell, you're really out there, aren't you? Um, it's like, he's really weird. Peter Sagan, obviously. Peter Sagan doesn't give a shit. 
doesn't matter to him because he's Peter again. So he goes back at the end of the evening saying, oh, I didn't do very well today on my bike. I only finished second, but it doesn't matter because I'm Peter again. <laughs> I don't care. He came up with that brilliant answer, didn't he, a couple of years ago when he, was, when he finally got the yellow jersey. And someone said, well, you're going to lose it in a couple of days. He said, doesn't matter because after yellow, I wear green. And if I lose green, I have rainbow bands. <laughs> So he's just, he's just my biggest man crush ever, Peter Sagan. <laughs> I just love him. I love him. Uh, but they're nuts, aren't they? So, you know, Cavendish is obviously terrifying. Uh, and, um, yeah, they all in their own way are lunatics. You know, Armstrong, Arms goes right back to Armstrong, my memory, and all that sort of thing. And he was some um, differently. But yeah, I think probably of the riders who've embarrassed themselves, Cadell Evans uh, would, would, be, would be right up there. Do you want a Cadell Evans story? Another one? With that? Yeah. Um, I was told this by Charlie Regalius, the aforementioned, who briefly rode for Evans on the same team. I think it was one of those Lotto teams with a strange name, like Lotto Silence Lotto. <laughs> Which was, I'm sure you remember, silence was an anti-snoring remedy. Or lotto predictor, which was a pregnancy test. Don't tell me that cycling is a two-bit sport. Um, anyway, uh, so Charlie Wigeli is signed for Cadell Evans' team. And Evans at the time and still lives in Switzerland for reasons that probably don't need explaining. Um, uh, but he lived in Switzerland, and Charlie relocated to Switzerland uh, as one of his key mountain domestiques, wanted to change the scene as well, and, and uh, rented a house with his uh, wife, and I think they had a young kid at the time, and, and, uh, and moved into this new flat just down the road from Evans. And he sent Evans a text message that afternoon when he moved in and said, Cadell, just thought you'd like to know, I've moved into so-and-so village, and I'm just down the road from you, mate, so anytime you want to drop, drop round, you know, do feel free and come and, have a, come and have dinner with the wife. You know, we'll cook you a meal. Minute later, bing, what time? <laughs> what we got in the fridge? I just moved in, so <laughs> we rustled up a lasagna or something like that, you know. You go, um, well, I don't know, seven, seven thirty, you know, Cadell, maybe boss, you know, because he was after all the boss. So, ding dong, seven thirty. There's Cadell Evans standing there, and in Charlie's words, he's clutching. He's wearing a suit, and he's clutching a bottle of wine like that and he walks in and the first thing he says to Charlie is this bottle of wine Charlie it's the most expensive bottle of wine you'll ever see it's a fucking beauty well come in Cadell and they sit down and they sit down at the dinner table and he places the bottle of wine just there on the table in front of him and just leaves it there and at the end of the evening he goes all right, Charlie, thanks for dinner. <laughs> and disappears. Uh, I wasn't there, but I feel like I was there. I feel like I was there. <laughs> Any more questions? Any more questions? Yeah. Is that going in the podcast? <laughs> Consult the lawyers. <laughs> so I was listening to a podcast the other day. <laughs> That's fine. My question, Ned, was... Who is the best and worst member of the ITV team to share a long car journey across France with? Well, undoubtedly Gary Imlach. Um, he, uh, he eats only walnuts and mackerel. At the same time? or? 
no, he's, he suffers from a lot of allergies, does Gary? And he did that weird thing where you, uh, some of you might have done it, where you try and figure out where, what your allergies are. So bit by bit, you reduce your diet down to the, I think, I might have misunderstood the science of this, but <laughs> there are two known food substances in the human world to which there is no attributable allergy. So if you reduce it down to that, then you know, then you start to add substances in, then you can isolate which substance is causing you the allergy. And, uh, those two substances are pears and lamb. So for a year, he lived on lamb and pears. And he, he used to tease him about it. Say, what, what are you having for lunch, Gary? Pears? <laughs> With a lamb main course and a pear. <laughs> he said, mix it up, Gary. Go crazy. Have a lamb, lamb starter and a pear after. But, uh, Boardman falls asleep. You know, Miller is still stuck in 1994 in more ways than one. So he plays Euro trance <laughs> music and puts on some of his chapter three shades and, you know, all that kind of thing. Uh, so basically, they're all a complete pain in the ass, except for me. I'm great. I'm great. Great company. I don't shut up, but I'm great company. Uh, so you mentioned Chris Boardman. He is sadly leaving ITV Towers and moving sod. on yes, to, yes, to yes, other yes. things. Who's going to take his place? Well, um, couldn't tell you, but um, it's a... You know, with obviously we 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 want and need to replace Chris Boardman, but it genuinely feels like a family bereavement. I'm not joking. I mean, he told me uh, on the eve of the second rest day, we were in Carcassonne. We just finished the stage, uh, and we rolled down the road and uh, just sat down and had a beer. It was a lovely sunny evening, and he said, I'm "Not coming back next year." And I honestly felt like someone had punched me in the solar plexus. Chris is um, not only a very good friend; he's a consummate broadcaster. And uh, he's got a clarity of thought and um, and a warmth of personality that uh, is actually irreplaceable. He was also, um, in the history of cycling in this country, an absolute uh, keystone. You know, if you talk to anyone who's informed about the sport, it began and ended. The, the modern era began with Chris Boardman. And we are still seeing, reaping the, the, the benefits of the Chris Boardman revolution. Um, so, uh, so... I'm very sad that he's leaving and I still hold hope that um, it'll all go to shit in Manchester and he'll come back. <laughs> it started to go badly wrong today. Yeah, it's, uh, pulled so, out all today. we need to do, exactly, yeah. All, uh, well, in fact, Corbyn needs to lose the Labour leadership. Andy Burnham, who's the mayor of Manchester, needs to stand for the Labour. Uh, I can see it all coming together now and then. <laughs> Boardman will come back cap in hand. <laughs> With all his podcasting and atoning, do you think there will ever will be a place for Lance Armstrong in cycling again? Uh, I've got a question for you in a second. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> uh, I don't care. I don't really care about Lance Armstrong. I find, it, I find it kind of like baffling his enduring fascination for people, actually, on both sides of the coin. Some people love him, actually, you know, as a big constituency of people who kind of are still fascinated and actually quite admire him in a weird way. There's stuff to admire. He's a human being, you know. He, I mean, he is. I mean, I mean that genuinely. He's a human being, isn't he? And you can't just, you know, the world isn't like that. He infringed in certain ways, and some people will want to never forgive him. Others will, you know. But actually, uh, more than anything else, I'm just bored of him, actually. And kind of like uh, his name getting mentioned feels uh, like a bit of a relic, actually. You know, um, he's not, I don't think he's relevant. So, no, probably not. Um, but my question for you, just very quickly, would be. Dan Martin uh, is a... I'm guessing, unless you're putting on an accent, you're Irish. Yeah. 
Dan Martin won a stage uh, in brilliant fashion, and he's a one. There's lots to admire about Dan Martin. Um, is he Irish? Oh, he's Birmingham, isn't he? His, but his, his uncle or something, or his aunt. No, his, no, his, his mother is. By that, I mean. Roach's do you? Sister, that yes, it? absolutely. Yeah. By that, but you grew up in Birmingham, right? Yeah. So by that, uh, by that question, what I really mean is, do you feel that he's Irish, and does it even matter? And oh, I'm, yeah, I'm asking be... you that because of the whole difficulty that a lot of people have with Chris Froome. Oh yeah. Um, well, I mean, Nicol Rose was French. <laughs> I mean, we don't really have like Sam um, Bennett is probably one of the only and Philip uh, Dagenham was it for Sky? Like, um, if they if they wear the jersey, like that's you know, and they feel like well, there's plenty of people over here in London who are second generation or whatever like that Irish and. Really, they've all been born here, but they really identify as Irish. To me, I don't care. Like, I'm not really that nationalistic or patriotic in in that way. But um, I do find it fascinating with Chris Froome stuff, I suppose. But equally, I don't think Froome has... He doesn't seem to identify himself as British, whereas Dan maybe in some way does, to some level, identify as Irish. I don't know. I think that's very true. Uh, I think you know, Chris Froome's in Britain for the first time in his life this week, isn't he? <laughs> It turned out, ah, so this is what it looks like, eh? Um, I'm being mischievous. Uh, my, I think we're probably in agreement, and many people in this room would be. For me, one of the great joys of cycling is you don't follow teams. No one follows teams who really get cycling, I don't think. Uh, and you don't follow nationalities particularly either. You have individuals who you kind of look out for and uh, individuals who you really, really wish ill on. <laughs> and that's what makes cycling tick and that's why it's a better sport than it's better than that it's better than that okay now we're going to play pass the parcel <laughs> game time who, who came last time adults love to play kids games so you can start yeah this is how we're going to end it basically thanks Ned uh <laughs> Editor Alex here. I've saved you the horror and taken out the section where we played Pass the Parcel, but if you come to our next live show, you could play it too and win some prizes. I think we're going to end by... Can we all give Ned a, a round massive, of applause? massive, massive, massive round of applause? And I'd like to say give yourselves one. Thank you so much for coming out. Me and Jenny yeah. really appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming to this stupid thing that we do. <laughs> <laughs> it means a lot. It does. So yeah, everybody, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, if you like what we do, don't forget to like us on SoundCloud rate us on iTunes, and subscribe. If you have friends that like cycling and podcasts, don't forget to tell them about our show. Until next time, bye! Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 